Hi, and welcome to Cursed Objects with me, Kasha T. And me, Dan Hancocks. Uh, Today we're going to be thinking about style, because often what makes a cursed object cursed is the way that it supports or questions our views on taste. So what looks cool, what's aesthetically beautiful, and what is uh, objectively hideous. (laughs) We'll have plenty of that, no worry. So before I get into describing the object I've brought in, I just want to really quickly play a little recording of my niece talking about my object. What's that? What's that? That's a monster. Yeah, it's a monster Yeah, a monster <laughs> <laughs> Um, So apart from this recording being unbelievably cute um, and also making me sound like one of those really earnest rappers that's like playing their Answerphone recordings. Oh my God, it's a skit on your (laughs) mixtape. It sounds like an interlude on my mixtape or my album. Um, What my niece is describing here is my variegated Thai constellation, Monstera Deliciosa, or my variegated Swiss cheese plant. The name Monstera Deliciosa literally translates as delicious monster (laughs) because they like grow in their natural habitats. They grow to these like really huge sizes, but also apparently they bore really delicious fruit, which the majority of people that own them as houseplants will never experience because they're not grown in their natural habitat. I don't know. It looks it's like not a kind of cheese, does it? No, it's, it looks kind of weird, but apparently it's delicious. Oh. Otherwise, it wouldn't be given that kind of weird like sure, name. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, so, for anyone who has never seen one, imagine a regular Swiss cheese plant, or if you don't know what that is, um, just like a big plant with numerous flat, dark green leaves with kind of irregular slits along mm-hmm. the edges. That's how I describe it. And the variegated version, which is basically just a fancy way of saying it's got more than one color, which is green, and it's usually just like white or like a light green, um, like a patterning on the plant, has a fine smattering of white blotches on its leaves. So it's kind of like Jackson Pollock or someone's just gone to absolute town with like (laughs) a a white paintbrush. Um, And it's these blotches that make the plant incredibly rare and sought after. Uh So you can't grow these from a seed, um, but instead they grow from cuttings from existing plants, but also they're kind of like made um, from like grafts, I think. That's how they're made. And I think, and that's how they get Thai constellation because they originated in Thailand. Right. Yes, they're so kind of grown. It's not a variety of weed then? No. <laughs> no. Almost, but no. Although I do have this weird tag on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I don't know why I've kept the tag on because I've had this plant for quite a while now, but it just basically says Monstera Deliciosa, uh, rare cultivar with like an exclamation mark. It's, it's like it's box fresh and you've, yeah. like, you've wanted to keep the sort of stickers on your new era hat or something yeah. to prove that it's, this is a, you know, genuine article. So while this plan is certainly like it certainly costs less than something like a jackson pollock um although it kind of looks a little bit like one uh it wasn't cheap and it definitely remains the most expensive house plant how much so i have three house plants and like i'm not very schooled in this area but how much did it cost fuck um so 
Okay, mum, if you're listening, <laughs> turn <laughs> away wor- now. I'm worried now. Um, but yeah, it was £129. Holy shit. Yeah, which is quite a lot for quite it's a small plant. It's not even that big. Yeah, yeah. This, isn't, this isn't like a room-filling sort of, you know, monstrosity. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a baby one, this one. But I was Bloody just hell. really, really sad during my PhD. And sure. then I kind of, after I finished, after I handed it in, I was just kind of like fuck it, I'm just going to get myself this plant because I've been sad enough for long enough. (laughs) Well, and this was the sort of indulgence that you felt you needed to, you know, reward or perhaps medicate your your ailments of like studying or finishing your PhD. Exactly, exactly. But weirdly, I think the strangest thing about me coming to own this plant is the fact that before I owned it or even before I saw it in real life, I dreamed about it like really quite intensely dreamed about it. And I really kind of couldn't stop thinking about it. So I guess in this way, it's like an object that's truly cursed in the sense that we never really used curse, but it's cursed in the way that like its image cursed me. Like I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was haunting my dreams. And I bet there are like thousands like me that have felt like this. So, so, it, so it's placed a curse on you. It's placed a well, or its image has placed a curse on right. me. And I think kind of behind the idea of curseness is actually a really like complex and emerging means of like capital consumption and production that I think mm-hmm. is basically what we're going to uncover in this episode. Um, so today we're going to think about the desires, interests, and feelings of an age through these kind of most unexpected of cursed objects houseplants because houseplants are kind of part of this wellness industry you know houseplants make you feel good buy a houseplant are you sad buy a houseplant <laughs> damn I'm, buy more houseplants jesus okay fucking hell. <laughs> yeah they don't i mean I, I think it's one that maybe jars slightly with the with the title of our podcast but we're about to explain why actually they are cursed as much as you know a uh haunted doll might be or what have you you know they, they are freighted with like a great kind of history and and kind of culture that's actually way more complicated and and problematic in some ways than than might meet the eye 100 percent, 100 so swiss cheese plants um and actually what i really enjoy is the fact that in france they're not called swiss cheese plants they're called planta gruyere which is like <laughs> way more specific That's fantastic. here we're just like in britain we're just like i don't know like like a swiss cheese and no yeah, that's, you know, that's what, the one with holes in, right? the holes in? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like no we need to say a very specific yeah a very specific region um so they're obviously nothing well maybe not obviously they're nothing new and these ones specifically have been around since like the 1800s um when in, this, was, in this country. In this country, when there was a real yeah, boom during the kind of Victorian colonial period, particularly of taking species of plants from colonised lands, particularly, and using them to further this idea of scientific study. Yeah. And that's how a lot of how the British became incredibly established as a nation that uh, proclaimed that it was going around the world exploring mm. and furthering science, when actually what it was doing was exploiting exploiting peoples and and areas of land i mean and you know why are we a nation of gardeners like it's partly because it always fucking rains but it's also (laughs) because of this history like and that i think the relation brit's relationships with houseplants and with flowers and gardens and so on which is 
you know, it bears it bears mentioning like to other Europeans or to like Australian friends, they are dazzled in some mm. like friends that I've spoken to in the past by just how many kind of um, really like sophisticated floral displays you have in the mm. average British city. And we don't think anything of it, like mm. the vast majority of us, I think we just go about our business. But our relationship with a lot of these um, species does hop back to the colonial period. Mm. And it's something that I came across when I was doing some research in Canary Wharf on uh, the sort of colonial, how the colonial legacy of the Docklands, which mm. is what they were, that mm. space in East London, um, is still visible today mm. through the statues of slavers, though one of them was pulled down during the summer of 2020, uh, during that kind of Black Lives Matter wave. Mm. Um, these these slave owners, these prominent slave traders, these quote-unquote explorers were often botanists as well. Yeah. And in the telling of that that national story, they're always botanists primarily. They're not, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't say on the plaque prominent slave owner, it mm. says prominent botanist. Mm. And actually, if you go into the new Crossrail station in Canary Wharf, which, uh, well, the trains aren't running yet, um, upstairs there's this new Sky Garden um, with species from all over the world, species of plants from all over mm. the world, um, with their, which is brazenly neo-colonial in mm. the in, in the way that the sort of inf- informational plaques and and sort of you know signs up around the garden are like you know explore this oriental wonderland yeah. of like of um of exotic plants like it's mm. very exoticizing it's very orientalizing mm. um and it completely airbrushes over when it tells the story of how these rare cultivars <laughs> were yeah, obtained the yeah. first time the conditions under which they were obtained which yeah. is you know this massive overlap with um transatlantic mm. uh, slave trade yeah the historian jim endersby has written actually about the ways that the british empire could not have functioned in the ways it did unless it like without like Kew, for example without places like Q, Q, Q like Q gardens, Q gardens. Yeah. because if you look like across the kind of imperial world mm. or like places that were colonized but also in um like in in Portugal or Spain mm. in their kind of main cities because they've all got these kind of botanic royal botanic yes. gardens yes. they were a real status symbol of the ways in which other lands had been colonized mm. and all of the um like there was basically an ownership over the rare rare plants that had been found well, there. and over the land as well and over the land right? yeah yeah, yeah, that's yeah the strong implication and, is and like the soil the soil is now ours yeah. and everything that grows in it yeah and it's really interesting actually because so um you know there's this like long running joke about how nothing in the british museum is british sure. but actually what the british museum was intended to do was to secure a world view okay. so british subjects would go to the british museum and they would say look at all of these lands people places that that we have conquered and mm-hmm. that's exactly what botanic gardens yeah. did but they get off scot-free they because get off lightly. yeah they get off lightly they so do don't they because it, it, it's absolutely the same principle you're describing in the british museum except oh look pretty pl- plants yeah. and flowers like i wouldn't have look been at able, this orchid why well, would i wouldn't have looked at your monstera and been like oh well it's from where is it from South, South and Central America. South and Central yeah. America. I would have been like, oh, cool, cool plant. Like it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't speak to sort of a foreign culture to me in yeah. in, in the same way that you know a, a plundered sort of artifact that, yeah. that, that kind of you know uh, the Elgin marbles or what have you might do. Exactly, exactly. So it really kind of reinstated a particular worldview of like ownership over the land in a mm. way that I think is 
really, really interesting, but like often we don't think about in connection to houseplants. And I guess the way that the majority of us think about houseplants and the reason why monsters started haunting my dreams is because we engage with them so much. We see their shapes so frequently and so often. So monsters, Swiss cheese plants particularly, they are hugely popular as houseplants. So they had a kind of, they they were really popular from like 1950 until 1980 and they slightly fell out of favour but they've really come back in emergence in recent years but it's not just the houseplants as in owning the houseplants it's also the kind of image of the shape of their leaves that's become Mm. particularly iconic like their silhouette you would say if you're in fashion yeah 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 exactly so it appears on like a range of different objects so from pencil cases to posters to lampshades and also I don't know whether you've seen I don't know whether the advertising and gets you like this but um, there are often these like t-shirts that are mainly aimed at women where there's like the outline of a monster leaf over what like one over each boo and it's kind of like this no the, um, al- the algorithm has not hit me that right, way <laughs> yeah. so it's like this kind of design that's like really ch- like tying into a popular aesthetic of like modern feminism wow. of this kind of twee but also provocative and I don't mean like strictly in the like sexy sense although mm. there's obviously a kind of drawing of attention to like places or like to parts which are kind of viewed as sexy <laughs> or part of that so right? instead of a fig leaf you've got a monster leaf, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's basically <laughs> like that but it's kind of I guess what it's doing it's provoking a discussion on the kind of acceptable ways that women or the accepted designs and styles that women can wear it's kind mm-hmm. of saying like yeah we're kind of drawing your attention to this area on this t-shirt but we yeah. can do that because modern feminism says that we're not defined by the shape of our bodies but also it ties into the aesthetic of monsters because you see them so often. Right, right. Do you see what I mean? Because yeah. the shape has become so iconic. Yeah. So it's what... like a modern fig leaf. Yeah. It's like almost, yeah, an alternative fig leaf. <laughs> <laughs> but is that, I mean, is a lot of that about Instagram then? So, yeah. So I would say the ownership of this plant, but also the popular reproduction of its shape is a move that's inherently, like inherently tied to the development of contemporary social media platforms and technologies, like particularly Instagram. Because once you like on Instagram one picture of a monster or one like pencil case with a monster on it and you just think, oh, that's a nice design. The Instagram algorithms fill your feed full of plants. Before mm. you know it, you're like scrolling and scrolling and drowning and in addicted. pictures. Well, like, this is kind of how how I became radicalised. Oh, man. How many plants do you have, Tasha? I have uh, about 60-odd. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, like... And that's why she can't afford a house. (laughs) Thanks for letting everyone know that I don't own a house. (laughs) I don't own a house. Please support our Patreon if you can. (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, so I guess one of the things that happened to me is that I hadn't really, I didn't really have that much of an interest in plants growing up. Or the natural world. Yeah, I mean... We're both city dwellers. We're both city dwellers, yeah. We, like, both grew up in London. And, you know, I've always... I, I know how to go for a walk. I've done that. Sure. And, you I know, can tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. Actually. Really important. Yeah, yeah. yeah, really important. I've milked a goat. I actually have milked a goat. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, Life's tough in North. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out Kentish Town City Farm. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was just, it really kind of came to a head during my PhD when I was doing my PhD because I couldn't go anywhere. And it turns out that like drinking 10 pints is not actually a great way to deal with stress. No, you were allowed outside, but you just, you had to sort of sublimate all of your desires for social activity yeah. and fun <laughs> yeah, through plants. And actually, interestingly, it feels like the rest of kind of my generation have really caught up with me while they've been <laughs> stuck inside and depressed during this pandemic. The poor bastards. Yeah, it's like, welcome to the club. I've and been now doing you're a, this for now you're a doctor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like it, it, um, it was a really, I don't know how to describe it really, other than a really hard time in which trying to maintain some kind of pattern, some kind of routine is really mm. tricky. But also all you want to do is go out and drink because you don't technically have a boss except for yourself, yeah. but you're really stressed. And whenever anyone's like, oh, do you want to go for a pint? You're like, yeah, why not? So you have, <laughs> suddenly have 500 million plants to water, then you've introduced some routine and a responsibility into your life. One thing that's like really prominent on like plant Instagram, like the plant community Instagram, <laughs> is this idea of like calling yourself a plant mama or a plant oh, papa boy. and calling the plants <laughs> plant babies. That's a, that a level of twee beyond what I think is acceptable <laughs> for this show, even if we're you know, discussing it critically. Yeah, and like. I don't know, it becomes really normalised in that context. I don't yeah. know how to describe it. The one thing I would say is that um, businesses sure. have really gotten onto the idea of um, kind of creating a sense of attachment to plants through yeah. creating like names and identities. So to kind of really freak you out, I thought, because you're not accustomed to this, I would... Uh, introduce you to the world of patch plants, right? Okay. Which I'm surprised that haven't they that they haven't targeted you on Instagram yeah, already. Um, after hearing this podcast, they will start appearing okay. on your phone for sure. <laughs> um, but basically, there is this company called Patch Plants, which is a distributor of plants online. Um, I would say that they're specifically targeted at a kind of millennial audience. Mm. Um, and basically, when you go on their website, something I actually found horrific as well is that they name the plants they sell, but for you. So they turned them into little green dudes before you've even had a say over what little green dude you oh, get. So, so they in all a have way. like human names. They all have, yeah. They okay, so um, my variegated monstera. Uh, is given the name Aurora, oh, you know, sake. because of the kind of Jackson Pollock style design. And it's like in the description, it's like this plant is basically a celebrity. <laughs> That's what they yeah. say about it. To justify the high price. Yeah, to justify <laughs> the high price. Well, on there, it's like 175 quid for one that was smaller than mine. So in that sense, I got a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel quite good about that. Um, but like a regular cheese plant is called, for some reason, Chaz, I guess, because it's a cheese plant. Um, and they do loads of like really quite lame um, alliteration. <laughs> like, uh, so they've got Pippa the Peace Lily, Susie the Snake Plant. Sharon the parlor palm I'm not sure why they picked Sharon I kind of by this point had given up kind yeah, of thinking about the names yeah but I guess 
Patch is kind of targeting millennials in a really specific way. So you can, there are like places that you can buy plants online, like garden centers that do it. Often, like they operate out of the Netherlands that has like a monopoly, pretty much. Not a monopoly, but it has a very on strong foothold on rare, rare cultivars. It's got a strong foothold on rare cultivars, <laughs> basically. So, actually, quite a lot of our garden centers are at times supplied from the Netherlands. It's yeah, just got yeah. a really big plant growing and exporting and what, industry and what do you think that i mean what does this mean it just seems very instinctively to me like a very 2010s kind of um online instagram heavy kind of wellness industry um phenomenon is that is that fair like the fact that millennials are getting so enthusiastic mm. about house plants the fact that they're being commodified in this very twee and annoying yeah, fashion yeah, yeah, yeah. um you know at, at its root like there is probably something here, sorry, no pun intended on the route, um, <laughs> is like an attempt to like connect with the natural world that that we've maybe lost a relationship with. Though I think, you know, this the COVID year is like um, a weird disruption of that. Yeah, so right. yeah. But, but that the, this sort of an env- environmentally conscious, like affectively sort of, you know, emotionally literate, mm-hmm. um, kind of generation um are you know throwing themselves at these at these plants because everything else about their live life is sort of alienating essentially yeah and they're alienated from the natural world they're alienated from their domestic surroundings and so bringing like a house plant into your rented accommodation mm. is like a big a big part of trying to establish something that feels more um not just wholesome, but like lasting. Yeah, for sure. And sustainable. Yeah, it's you know everything it's, is precarious. It's really weird. Like I haven't told you about this, um, but like houseplants really fulfill this kind of zeitgeist at the moment in a kind of weird way. Like uh, often when you go on like dating apps, okay. there's like loads of people on dating apps that are like posing with like all their plants. I'm not even joking. And I was just like, I was quite bored, and I was like, oh, fuck it, I'll go on a date with this guy. And he was posing and he with all out to these. Be a <laughs> he turned out to be a walking houseplant. No. And like I was like, oh, I like your houseplants. Um, what's your favourite one? And he just picked the baitest one. Like I can't remember oh. what it was, but it was like some bait. Straight swipe right after. Honestly, that. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just talking, and I was like, oh, I'll kind of forgive it. And then obviously, like talking to him, he knows nothing about houseplants. It's not. Like he's not interested. He's not interested in the rare cultivar. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, that's really interesting. Isn't but like, it? this is like particularly. I think like the houseplant phenomenon has particularly taken off during COVID, and patch they um, value went up by like five hundred percent during COVID. It's what? like share prices or well, so not quite Zoom levels, but you know, no, but like literally on, on a similar level because people are just bored at home and they're yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. you know. Well, there has my been, bare walls. I mean, I think it's easy to forget because, like, the last year or so has just been so temporally disturbing, apart mm. from anything else. Like, it's really hard to work out. Like, did I do that thing last week or 10 years ago? Mm. Um, but it's worth thinking back to March last year, in fact, the mm. very beginning of the pandemic, um, when, and, and maybe April. So, like, lockdown was what, like, March 23rd, I think, the first lockdown. And there was that phenomenon of, I think, just a lot of people noticed that they were noticing a lot, mm. which sounds like a very strange, stupid sentence. But like, 
as spring was beginning to sort of come into bloom, mm. we were all, we'd slowed down our pace of life because there was nothing to do and we were all mm. stuck in our houses. I know from my perspective, like there's one massive tree outside my flat and my flatmate and I were watching it every day because there was nothing to do. Like I can tell you the first day it came into bloom, it came into bloom on the 1st of April because mm. we were like fuck yeah come on go on tree because mm. you know we're all losing our minds with boredom and worry mm. um, and so a sort of focus on this kind of quite mindful um, relationship with nature that wasn't there before yeah like I could, sure. I've lived here for four years I couldn't tell you what year it came into bloom the previous years because <laughs> I had shit to do man mm. like um, and there was that big meme on uh, you know across social media of like nature is returning yeah. we are the virus that was so <laughs> correctly and roundly mocked because it's like here's like a photo of some dolphins in Times Square or something like that you know that, I'm not sure that was a real one I think that might have been faked I think that was a deep fake but you know there was there was that sense that like you know that that actually we were being punished for like mm. losing our relationship with nature and at the same time everyone's stuck at home certainly for a lot of people like they're not spending any of their what would normally be disposable income if they mm. had some um, on going out, mm. on shopping, on pubs, on bars, on restaurants. And so a lot of friends I know were buying house, lots of house plants yeah. in that period. Several of them got kittens over the summer, mm-hmm. you know, um, because you're trying to make the domestic environment in which you are fucking trapped yeah. into something that's more fulfilling. And, you know, what? Do, I mean, what's it mean when we bring nature into our domestic space? Like we're... We're, we're transgressing a barrier yeah. right like and we're and we're doing it maybe to express a lack of something yeah or are we trying to connect with like our ancient cave dwelling selves when there would have hang on do plants grow in caves yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's out of my depth here when it comes to like um some of the geology of it but you know mm-hmm. um there's there's i know that like while i've only got three house plants i have a couple of Japanese um, hanging kind of drapes uh, that I got from from my sister in Japan that ha- display quite idyllic natural scenes with leaves and so on. My curtains that I bought have leaves on them. Right. Like, what am I trying to do to <laughs> yeah, my bedroom? Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to make it a forest. Yeah. Why? I don't know why. I just know that's how I want it to look. Yeah. But I think there's something deeper going on there when we try and um, bring the outside, bring the natural world into our domestic spaces. Yeah, it's almost like um, Walter Benjamin wrote about, sorry, Walter Benjamin wrote about... We accept both pronunciations yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> kind of wrote about the porosity between the inside and the outside when he was in Naples, particularly, like the right. ways in which the outside kind of come into the inside and how we might think about that as a, like as a kind of cultural practice in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, that happens across the Southern Mediterranean. I've seen mm. it across Andalusia. Like um, older ladies particularly will bring a dining chair out onto the front step mm. and then talk to people as they pass. Yeah. It's like that's the living room coming out onto yeah. the street. And it's something else we saw a little bit of in COVID because mm. people weren't allowed into each other's homes. You're having conversations on the doorstep. Mm. On Rye Lane in Peckham, near where I live, you had people... Um, bringing chairs out and even like a sofa I think out onto the pavement that mm. because the traffic's gone mm. um but here's this safer oh my God, outdoor nature space is returning. nature is returning <laughs> but that nature is like the nature of like our, dom- our sociality mm. that's, yeah with that, that space with that space and 
I mean, it also it's it's also manifested that kind of liminal indoor outdoor thing mm-hmm. in in the Spanish and Moroccan southern Spanish and Moroccan courtyards, yeah, which are sure. simultaneously exposed to the rain, mm. but there isn't really any rain. They mm. are shaded spaces where you have. Um, which in the pre kind of air conditioning era was the only place you could survive the unbelievably hot summer was to sit in this shaded courtyard. Mm. But it's, it's also, it's also like a more democratic space in a way Mm -hmm. because it's, um, because it's open to people, lots of different people from different households, different families Mm. to share. Do you know what? You see a lot of that. Um, I don't know whether you've ever had the privilege of like seeing inside quite a lot of like um, big buildings in the city where mm. they've got this like central space and like on the yes. kind of like in the kind of like layers of the floors, a lot of them now have like house plants. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're trying to like generate this kind of like indoor, outdoor, yeah. like plant space, plant populated space. Do you know what it is? It's the fucking, it's the Barbican Conservatory, um, mm. like greenhouse type space aesthetic yes so you've got kind of like modernism well different type of modernist architecture in these banks which were generally built in the in the city of london the last 10-15 years rather than you know glorious brutalist post-war um buildings but they are nonetheless combining the hyper modern yeah with something that um that speaks to you know a much something innate something yeah yeah for sure something that is grounded in the earth yeah so it's like yeah don't worry that you're going to spend like the majority of your life actually in this building because we've got these plants and plants make you feel plants do make you feel better like i mean that's proved i'm sure that's proven like in scientific peer-reviewed papers yeah for sure and have you listened to um the it was a like drama on the BBC and it's actually one of the best dramas I've ever listened to. It was called Forest Four O Four. Or like Forest Not Found. <laughs> Do you know, I never made that connection. Right, right, but that's what it means. Yeah, that's basically what it means. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God damn, I can't believe I've got a PhD. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I never made that connection. Now, in the sense, in the context of that story, it makes way more sense. <laughs> and here's me getting all emotional. So is it about, about it. lost forest? Yes, in a way, they like pro- they have like sec- sections of this story progressing. So they've got like a bit of a story that's like ten minutes long, mm. and then they intersperse that with like two little sound clips. One is like a scientist talking about what's happened in that bit of the story, and then the next is like just a little clip of something from nature mm-hmm. so once they did like a chorus of frogs like because frogs like sing together wow. in nature and then another was just like the sounds of whales and another one was like the sounds of just like the forest and it was honestly probably one of the only things i've ever listened to that's actually like brought me joy like that's so amazing i mean it, what, but what's also amazing is that that sounds like a not to disparage it because it's the joy is sincere and genuine. Yeah. Sounds like a new age CD that you might find in a petrol station. Yeah, yeah, bin. yeah for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds for sure, for sure, for sure. Kind of but the thing, I guess, the thing is, is it makes it different when you hear the science behind it. So okay. maybe there's like a dual thing going on because if I hear someone being it like, your intellect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but if there's someone being like, oh yeah, we're going to listen to a chorus of frogs and basically we grew up around frogs like in nature and this is what it means and this is why it's so comforting. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh yeah, that is comforting. Oh, it's slightly see. less like right. like banging drums on Avalon <laughs> <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind 
of like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of less of those mystic. Yeah. Oh my God, Druids, B2B Stonehenge. Absolutely love it. <laughs> but yeah, there is something about the ways in which nature makes us feel. And actually one thing, so considering I've bought so many plants, um, ironically, I was actually separated from them during the pandemic. So when oh, most wow. people are buying the plants, I'm not buying the plants because I had to go and self-isolate with my parents. So um, I asked my cousin if she could look after them and she turned her living room into like a little school for her kids. And um, she like put all of my houseplants in this corner mm. and called it Forest Corner. Not only was it amazing for the kids because it felt like they were like learning about plants. And actually because of this history of colonialism, quite a lot of these plants do belong in forests actually. Yeah, like, okay. So there's something quite like but also a lot of houseplants really really like to be collectively bunched together because it recreates the environment of a rainforest no way yeah they like the humidity oh, of being like collectively bunched together so my cousin kind of did this and like asked my nieces and nephews to water the forest which they did to varying degrees of success because <laughs> whenever them. I try and give my niece like a cup or like something to like water the plants she always just like throws it on herself <laughs> but there was something like it really I really enjoyed the fact that they were making use of those plants but obviously they were make, they were also really enjoyed the fact that they weren't just that they could have that formative experience that they could have that experience with nature mm. yeah, yeah. in a kind of school context in a way sure. yeah yeah because loads of parents had no no clue what to do with their kids like what do you do with your kids if they can't go to school for three months you basically just have to throw them at some plants throw them at some plants like yeah. go and go and deal with the monster get back, get back yeah to yeah but i think this this kind of wellness thing that's associated with plants is i think we can't think about it or um relate to it uncritically basically. Mm. And there is something really quite um, uncomfortable is not the right term, but there is something about the ways in which Instagram makes money and individuals and companies make yeah, yeah. money off of this well, like that, wellness industry. And I think, I mean, wellness is such an icky word anyway, isn't it? It sort of broadcasts its own mm. cynicism from the get-go, mm. but, um, but it overlaps with things like, like other thriving... Um, subcultures that have thrived on Instagram, like like veganism, for example, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that that on the one hand is a completely sincere and joyous space of community where mm. individuals who do not know each other, and I know, I know this from friends of vegan who've told me this verbatim, like mm. found you know a support network and actual bona fide IRL mates mm. through quote unquote vegan Instagram, but at the same time. It is cynically exploited by, you know, bloggers, shysters and hucksters that are sort of <laughs> reminiscent of like, you know, 20th, sorry, not 20th, 19th century mm. quack doctors mm. who kind of had a solution for your ills that are probably yeah. induced. Lemon by, water. Here you go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Your, your, your ills that are probably induced by living under late capitalism, yeah. by poverty, yeah. by, by, you know, by whatever sort of mental health challenges you might have that the solution to which is not some quinoa mm. and, and a houseplant, you know, yeah. the solution is, is, is rather more serious than that. Yeah. And these things are just lifestyle accoutrements that yeah. you can have too, yeah. but which are, are, are ultimately like the necessary solution. Um, so I guess like one of the things that we need to kind of interrogate specifically in relation to that is the ways in which 
these things explicitly relate to capital and capital production. Mm. So um, I've got a very explicit relationship with capital and this plant. So um, although it was kind of expensive, I ended up finding myself, or maybe because it was so expensive, I ended up justifying it to other people in terms of capital and like what I could potentially generate in terms of capital. So Well, you make with offcuts. Okay, so yeah. So basically because the plant's so rare, because uh, its demand basically completely outweighs its the yeah. abilities to supply it, um, cuttings of it go on eBay for like 30 to 60 pounds. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes way, way more. And fully grown ones go for about 250 to 300 pounds easily. And they're often just sold out. So you can't even buy them even if you, even if you want to, basically. So in terms of, wow, that's really interesting in terms of supply and demand. It's really mm. interesting as well because I can't think of many other like commodities that are really comparable in terms of self-reproducing like, yeah. capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what was so weird about it? It's like... After hearing so much about magic money trees in the press, it <laughs> oh, felt like I had finally, yeah, I'd actually finally got myself like this weird man- magic money tree. Oh my God. But I think what's like super strange about it is that like I'd never really sell bits of it because I'd feel too weird about profiteering off of this plant. I know that sounds a bit strange because that's also anthropomorphizing this plant sits like a person and I wouldn't want to like... <laughs> like you were, that would somehow mean that you were the boss? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be what, a boss. What would Mark say about yeah. this? I'm getting a little bit confused about where it fits in the sort of analogy of surplus value. Yeah. But um... but like, what's so weird about it is that like there are so many like as <laughs> you call them hucksters and shysters yeah. who basically sell bits of this plant on eBay for like a lot of money and you need to get like the right bit of the plant so it has to include a node uh, so that it can propagate so that you, as in you can like grow it in yeah. water and then plant oh, it yeah, yeah. but like loads of people just like sell like a leaf and then they're selling uh-huh. a leaf for like 50 quid and obviously a leaf's not going to grow right. there is this entire black market industry that underpins this plant so it's like so compare it to like the you know luxury sort of classic nike trainer market say yeah you know online rare sneakers or whatever it would be like selling just a shoelace or something literally or just like i don't know like painting your own nike shoes and then being like limited edition you should do that <laughs> <laughs> so i guess what i can't really stress enough is like the importance of instagram in their success like these plants particularly mm. um but also rare plants more generally so there's this one woman who's like an instagram model and um i went back through her pictures obviously because that's what you do on instagram and when she was a model she'd get like a hundred or so likes but as soon as she started like posing with her like rare plants she'd be getting like upwards of like six thousand six to eight thousand likes wow is that because quite like, a jump. plant insta just weighed in plant insta just weighed in right. and was like yeah so one of the, the main things that instagram profits off of is monetizing popular aesthetics or what we might kind of call style or we might call kind of call taste And I think that, like, style isn't this wishy-washy, unimportant 
thing, but I kind of follow the thinking of historian Ben Highmore, but also Raymond Williams thought a lot about style. Mm. Um, one of the compelling things about um, Highmore's argument is that he sees taste as an agent of social historical change, as well as a practice that maintains and reproduces social class. So he looks uh, specifically at the development of the lifestyle shop habitat from about the 1960s and 70s. Um, and he argues that habitat kind of really encapsulated a range of feelings that existed during that period, particularly this kind of sense of middle class classlessness. So the ways in which the new middle class and new middle class consumers had a taste for and then styled themselves as classless, as opposed to like their parents' generation who aspired to be upper class. Right. So, so essentially that maybe pre-war particularly or certainly before this moment in the 1960s and 70s this sort of big shift in the kind of structure of feeling of of, mm. of that of that of that era um that the middle classes tended to try to ape the style and the, of and the sort of that goes for interior decor and things mm. like that extends to houseplants of the upper classes right yes, yeah so if you're a middle class in the 1920s you were trying to buy the same sort of ornate tables and yes, like oak yeah. panelled whatevers mm. and that uh that the actual aristocracy had yeah yeah and there's, but then there's a revolution in in taste as it were mm-hmm. post-war mm-hmm. enabled by something like habitat and yes, in a, to a yeah. large extent that sort of democratizes that taste a little bit it makes it accessible yeah. in the same way that ikea makes kind of cheap sort of um but you know stylish, stylish. yeah they are mm-hmm. you know stylish items available to all and accessible to all exactly exactly that but like as part of that aesthetic as part of that style it wasn't that things that the upper classes owned that were like expensive to produce uh were championed in habitat necessarily it'd Mm. be things like you know um like enamel plates or like enamel cups they're kind of like white enamel and then they've got like a blue edge around them yeah and they're really really like awful receptacles of like hot <laughs> liquids because they are conductors like there's like really so you, terrible so you just burn your mouth so you just burn your mouth or you they, burn your hands or your lap you look so cool but you look so it. cool yes yeah, so like habitat would sell these kind of enamel plates because mm. and they are like literally a reclaiming of a particular i guess like a working class or not necessarily working class but a used thing um, mm. A used object and kind of saying this is now chic. This a is co-option. Now a co-option. You, you yeah. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. cultural appropriation of of the nineteen seventies form, basically, or nineteen sixties form. I want to unpick something you said there about the classlessness of the middle class, because okay. that's obviously I'm a little bit like head exploding emoji at mm. that. By that, do you mean that you have an establishment of the middle class in the nineteen sixties and seventies of their taste as normative? That's it. Yeah, exactly. So suddenly it's like you get all of these middle class people and you still get middle class people <laughs> that do this, that kind of go, oh, you know, this, I don't, I don't see the difference between class. This is. Our experience is universal. Our experience is universal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that sort of paves the way for the establishment for, I mean, cause Heim, I read this Heimer essay as well. And he talks mm-hmm. about the SDP as uh, the social democratic party who were formed Split from the Labour Party, 
um, when four people who didn't like how left wing it was, kind of mm. uh, four prominent people left, the gang of four, how the SDP had a particular style associated with them, which I had absolutely no idea about. Mm. But that as a forerunner to New Labour, yeah. who are the absolute embodiment of this idea that, and the famous quote is, we are all middle class now. A lot of people think it's Tony Blair that said that. John Prescott, actually, which is really significant mm. distinction because he is actually from a working class background, <laughs> unlike little Lord Fontal Tony, who, uh, who went to a private school in Edinburgh uh, and does not have a Scottish accent. Always, I... always telling. Um, but yeah, that idea that like middle class experience is universal experience. Um, that's a, it's a ruinous and obviously completely false idea mm. that New Labour sort of popularised and helped make hegemonic and politically social and socioeconomically what what it goes alongside with is the erasure of so much industrial working class work mm. so the mines the factories the mills the shipyards mm. but the culture and community that runs alongside that mm. um at the same time and it's uh mad to think that the houseplant was responsible for all of that but it was <laughs> <laughs> But like the houseplant is like the, it's like a symbol of the agent. It's a symbol of the agency of style, isn't yeah, it? It's yeah. a symbol of the ways well in said. which like somewhere like Habitat specifically, its role. And I think Highmore really, really believes this. And, and I think it's quite a convince he's quite convincing in saying that its role was both kind of surreptitious and substantial in the transition from welfare state socialism to like neoliberal hegemony from the 1960s onwards so yeah. it really was actually quite it's a really useful lens but not just a lens it's also a key agent in changing or sustaining the ways in which particular classes develop a sense of taste and how they shape their wider social yeah, world yeah, yeah. on that depending on that yeah yeah there's a particular paragraph from the from the Highmore essay on habitat that I want to read um, because I think it really speaks to what we're trying to do with Cursed Objects so, so well. Like, it's mm. very helpful. Thank you, Ben. Love you, Ben. It's called Ben, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so so Ben Heimel, um is, is writes about the tensions between a kind of structure of feeling that would seem to be immaterial, so mm. not concrete, not in the real world. What I What's the mood? What mm. is the affective... Uh, sort of shift that's going on in the 1960s, and Heimel connects that to the material world, to mm. the physical objects, that like you know, our cursed objects mm. that are cursed with the weight of history. And he and he he goes on to say, however we assess these changes in feelings and attitudes and their material supports, it seems unlikely that change could be affected by the alteration of one or two items of material culture or one or two shifts in attitude. It would be absurd to imagine that permissiveness is affected through the preponderance of contraceptives or through the availability of floor cushions, though it might be hard to imagine the 1960s permissiveness without either item. <laughs> it is too much cultural weight for either of them item to bear. But when you start configuring floor cushions and contraceptives as part of a relay that includes CND, flared trousers, cheesecloth smocks, drugs, higher wages, and so on, we are getting closer to the sort of structure that constitutes and nourishes feelings. Mm. And so what, what we're saying is that, you know, one object on its own doesn't, mm. you know, create um, a revolution mm. in, in, in our way of living. 
necessarily. Mm. It doesn't create the spirit of a decade, the spirit of an age or the structure of feeling as we often refer to it. Mm. But when you put several of these objects together with a number of other kind of historical trends, you can actually draw back that Mm. much weight into a single object. And, and, And those are the objects that we are exploring the curses on yeah. in this podcast. <laughs> 100%. Like through exploring these kind of weird objects that we find, we can more clearly narrativize or I guess more clearly articulate why we live in... <laughs> why we feel so weird about or or how we respond to the world that we now live in yeah. or how we make sense of the world we live in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's actually, there's one, occurs to me, there's one example from much more recently than the 1960s and 70s um, in an essay that I think was entitled What Were the 2010s, which mm. was by Andy Beckett, a writer I really admire. He's a great historian of the 70s, apart from anything else. But the example of the object that he gave there, and in which he tried to he tried to like nail a cursed object for the 2010s, basically, and I think it failed. Mm. And I really admire the effort. But he uh he made the argument that the right the resurgence in popularity of the puffer jacket in the 2010s <laughs> was an example of wait for it um, the fact that we were all becoming too like we needed cosseting from the like horrible like austerity around us Aww. so we all got these like michelin man type jackets <laughs> and stuff and you know we my, all just needed a hug <laughs> we needed a hug from our big jacket um because times were tough and um i love that sort of speculative thinking i think i would say to andy's face I'm not with you on that particular <laughs> example, but um, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun bit of speculation. But I think what we're kind of really looking at here in a way is specifically with houseplants is that there is so that with the boom of houseplants, with so many people wanting to buy them and fill spaces in their homes, there's almost like it, what it alludes to is a more problematic world outside of the home (laughs) or a more complex picture of why these things are happening and it's not just because people just have I mean it's also it's down to the fact that people have money to spend on houseplants because they can't go to the pub because of covid but there's also something else happening here about why those houseplants exist in those spaces Mm -hmm. and I think that like it's particularly depressing for like renters Mm -hmm. um of our generation, who are quite a lot of our generation, mm-hmm. who cannot buy their own homes, are not allowed to paint walls, are not allowed to give any sense of like personal signification yeah. of the um, areas that they live. Yeah. They like live in apartments that they have to pay exorbitant rents on and that they never get the deposit back from. They can't put any nails in the walls. They can't have cats. Can't or, put blue tack on the fucking They can't walls. put blue tack like, on the walls. You're, you're like, you know, you're paying an insane amount of money in so many British cities um, for a complete lack of housing security. Yeah. And in exchange for that, you do not even have like the walls are not your purview. Like yeah. they're not within your, you know, your your power to control. Mm. Um, which is a staggering thing really. And hundred percent. But what can you do? You can mm. you can buy a plant. Like if you, you know, to personalize, to bring a sense of of um well yeah, as I said, sustainability and, and mm. the natural world, but also like your decision on how to decorate and, yeah. and how your living space, your domestic space mm. should look is is so restricted. I really yeah, I mean, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but the but the the crisis, the housing crisis in this country, which is you know definitive to the trajectory of our a lot of our 
economy and our politics, I think, mm. in the last 20 odd years. It is really underexplored, but you have like mm. a massive schism between the generations over who they are voting for mm. uh, over whether they vote remain or leave whether they vote labor or tory mm. um it's gone it's it's become polarized in a way it never has been historically like mm. mo- more than half of 18 to 24 year olds voted for margaret thatcher in the 1980s it has yeah. not ever been thus yeah that young people vote left mm. and vote remain and so on and so much of what is making that happen mm. is a a drawbridge that was pulled up mm. when they stopped building homes and stopped building affordable homes mm. and allowed Britain to become an, an, a rentier economy mm. effectively. Mm. And that that's the that's the story of the house plant like, to me as much as anything. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that um, there is a really interesting relationship here, especially with the ways in which COVID amplifies some of those developments and changes. So this historian, Catherine Horwood, wrote A History of Potted Plants in 2007. And she made the point that indoor houseplants fell out of favour in terms of taste in the kind of late 20th century. So just as like New Labour were coming in, really. um, But they were kind of fell out of favour because they were seen as a commodity that couldn't, that kind of took up too much time and couldn't really and time couldn't really be wasted on them in a way so they were seen as like the realm of like older people that like dod around gardens but like young people weren't really into houseplants because they were seen as a commodity that would like take away that they would take up too much time and a lot of people kind of shunned them in that sense and then what I think is really interesting is that she's now republishing this book (laughs) with a few edits and it's now called How Houseplants uh, how houseplants took over our homes. So it's kind of like another... Canny, canny bit of republishing, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think um, there's something really important here about the ways in which houseplants can really help us to explore this intersection between politics with a big P, um, like you're saying, through the ways in which um, we explore things like the housing crisis through politics, big P, but the ways that intersects with the politics of small P of... Um, how we live our lives and how we think about our our present conditions. And I think one of the most interesting um, ideas is that pre the monster craze of the 1970s, um, actually there was a different plant that ruled the mm. roost that was like popular in, in English homes. Yeah. It was the Aspidistra plant, uh, which was the kind of monster of the Victorian era because it could live in like really low light and like dingy homes where there were like toxic fumes in the city. And actually, um, George Orwell wrote a book called Keep the Aspidistra Flying, which for ages I didn't know what an Aspidistra was. I just sort of assumed it was a flag whenever I saw that title. Yeah. But in which the plant kind of represented middle class conformity and in which the lead protagonist notes there'll be no revolution in England while there are aspidistras in the windows wow and I think what's so interesting about that is it kind of makes me think it kind of makes me question or it makes me ask are houseplants hindering the revolution or are they just like a coping strategy a method of resisting everyday life in late capitalism with no one being able to own their homes is this a way of 
resisting and coping the present conditions in which we're infinitely more precarious, in which uh, the natural world is being chopped down around us. Well, not even necessarily chopped down. I mean, it is in definitely in the Amazon, but if we look at like the mm. fires in Australia, it's actually being burnt down because we're not managing it properly. Um, I say we as a collective we, the planet. I'm not getting all like neo-fascist or anything. But, you know, these are these are real concerns. And I'm wondering whether having these houseplants, it's like, hey, don't worry about the fact that you don't own your own home. Mm-hmm. Get a monster in. It grows really big. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a really pertinent question about, yeah, whether, whether houseplants are inhibiting a revolution. Like, I think on the one hand, you have this sort of William Morris type tradition the you know buzz phrase of like nothing's too good for the workers that's not him by the way but like you know, <laughs> so that, that's the internet so 2015 but um that there's there's this sense that everyday beauty is a is can be revolutionary itself that mm. we that we are entitled to bread and we are entitled to roses too and you know mm. and roses are your your aspidistra or your mm. or your monstera in that context that that you know beauty is a right as much as um, basic sustenance which I fully back but then you can also you can see that you know particularly like a massively commodified Instagram spawn content sort of driven um, mm. surge in the the interest in houseplants as something that is largely just mollifying like the tedium of everyday life um you know, the banality of office work with office plants we haven't really mm. touched on, but like that's another way of like, oh, prettifying something that is ultimately, you know, your bullshit job that yeah. in white, a white collar office that possibly doesn't need to exist and you certainly don't need to be there mm. 40 plus hours a week. Um, and whether that challenge, that's like obstructing us from challenging um, or indeed like up- upheaving like um, capitalism is obviously not in a literal sense is it mm. is it attempting is it doing that but but certainly like the story of the last 20 or 30 years has been the deepening of like personal credit and debt um to spend on sort of everyday goods mm. as a as a way of forestalling a level of uh public outrage and mm. and animosity that could yet still spill over you know mm. um i mean i think you mentioned sort of the bushfires in Australia. And it's one thing that it definitely speaks to the, is the rise of houseplants is, is climate anxiety. hundred yeah. percent. Like, you know, let's pull close yeah. these things that we are deep down fucking terrified that we are destroying yeah. forever, you yeah. know, the natural world around us. And we can't stop Bolsonaro. Yeah. Like destroying but you can buy a cheese plant. But, but you can buy a cheese plant, you know? Like, I, I, don't, I don't have the control. I don't have the power individually mm. to do anything mm. about Bolsonaro and the companies that are destroying the Amazon. But I can do this. I can, yeah. And I just as, you know, you can't, you can't control the housing rental market, but you mm. can control what's in your flat. Mm. provided it doesn't impinge on the fucking <laughs> walls or have four legs and a tail. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, brilliant. Um, I guess that's the kind of closing thing that we really need to think of. 
there's a lot of resistance to what we the current situation that we find ourselves in mm. but also there is this kind of sense that maybe it helps us to navigate the very bleak existence that we live in that we're not trying to question in any other way um so that is it for this week um if you have been affected by anything in our show and you need to talk to a professional about dreaming, about <laughs> variegated monsters, our DMs are always open. Also, follow Cash's plant Instagram. Follow my. <laughs> she ha- she has also, one. follow my plant Instagram. <laughs> um, But if you are affected by anything in this podcast, please do DM us, let us know. Um, And if you want to pay for that therapy, then our Patreon is always open too. And if not, then just recommend us to a friend. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Bye. Cheers. Bye.